Hi, and welcome back to another episode of LiveWire's Rules of Investing. I'm your host, Patrick Polk, and today's guest is Tim Tui, Head of Macro Strategy at Yarra Capital Management. After a stint at ANZ as a macro economist, Tim joined Goldman Sachs in 2002 as Chief Economist and Head of Macro Strategy. Between 2003 and 2016, Tim was named Australia's number one economist in the Greenwich Survey for 13 consecutive years. In this episode, we discuss the conflict in Ukraine and the best way to hedge your portfolio, why markets may be underestimating the rate rises set to come from the US Federal Reserve, and he explains a critical piece of data out of China that could have global ramifications. If you're an Apple Podcasts or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a LiveWire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to be notified whenever I post content. Not a LiveWire subscriber yet? Just head on over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free, easy to register, and you'll get access to insights from the leading investment minds in the country. Well, that's it for now. I hope you enjoy the show. Tim, welcome to the show. Good to be chatting with you again. It's been a while. Thanks, Patrick. It's uh, good to be here. I was having a bit of a look back before this interview at last time we had a chat, which was about three years ago, not long before the the COVID crash. And you were actually predicting at the time that Australia may face a recession in the next kind of 12 to 18 months, which I'm sure none of us would have predicted the actual reason, but you certainly got the timing right. (laughs) Well, thanks for that. That's very kind, but I think... uh I think I might have said that if if we get one, it might be due to an exogenous shock or China-led, but obviously I wasn't thinking a virus or anything (laughs) that ilk. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes um, the the benefit of hindsight definitely makes things look very prescient. (laughs) Well, look, as we're recording this, I'm actually going to date it, which I don't normally do so, but I think in this case it's relevant. Today being the 22nd of February, it seems as though Europe is on the edge of war. It's not a situation we've seen for a very long time. Of course, Russian troops are now in Ukraine as of this morning, and Putin is certainly making noises that uh, that they're not going anywhere anytime soon. Obviously, we've heard a lot about it from a geopolitical perspective. You know, all the major papers are covering it. But what about from an economic and a financial markets perspectives? You know, what are the things that people need to be most aware of from that from that point of view? Okay, thanks, Patrick. Well, first of all, I mean, I'm not a, a military specialist, but I, I would suggest, though, as you say, there are very, very few parallels to look at, uh, particularly in the post-war period, um, to heavily armed um, nuclear powers in the, in, the, in the guise of, obviously, Russia and the NATO forces led by the US um, are two factors that we've never really seen um, come to bear uh, in the post-war period. Um you could look back at the Cuban Missile Crisis as a bit of an analogue to some degree. Markets fell about 8% quite quickly, and as soon as the missiles were turned back, they actually rallied back pretty aggressively. So I think it's always going to be in investors' minds as to how much you should react ahead of a particular event. I think you'll probably notice that a lot of portfolio managers probably haven't moved their portfolios much at all. In fact, bonds have barely rallied uh, even as boots are going into the ground um, in the Ukraine right at, right at this moment. Um, so obviously, I don't think anyone really knows what Putin's full intentions are, whether it's a full-on invasion, a partial land grab, or he really is just trying to secure some sort of agreement that the Ukraine is not admitted into NATO. But um, but I think under that sort of later scenario, later sort of scenario, you could see de-escalation happen quite quickly, and we could see markets bounce um, reasonably quickly. If should that had been the case, um, now it looks a little bit more like that partial land grab scenario. Um, so this is something that's going to go on for a while, I suspect. And I guess the irony is in all of this is that it wasn't as though NATO was actually really championing the Ukraine's admission in any case, right? So. Uh, I think we can go all the way back to 2008 and uh, when uh, NATO said they'd welcome Ukraine's admission, but I think the Ukraine's been waiting by the phone ever since for, for that call up. So I think if you had to put your sort of feet in Putin's very expensive shoes for a moment and just look at a map, it's I think what's kind of interesting is that 
in his mind, and if you're looking back over the last 20-odd years, there's been a really big advancement of NATO right onto the Russian border, um, Lithuania, um, um, Estonia, um, those sort of areas right on the right on next to Russia have certainly joined NATO, and then down south uh, adjoining um, the Ukraine, you have had a whole host of nations, you know, including Bulgaria and Slovakia and others, uh, that have really taken land. So if, should Ukraine join as well, you really are talking about um, not just a, a massive land area, second biggest uh, country in Europe joining NATO, but of course really blocking off or surrounding most of the Black Sea, which is incredibly important to Russia. And if you, again, if you look at a population heat map, you know, so much of the Russian population are right on that Ukraine border and down around the Black Sea. So it's incredibly strategically important. We've all known that Putin, Putin gave a very long and emotional address this morning um, going on about the historical significance of, of Ukraine and how it never really was a sovereign state. So you know, in his mind, this is a prize that they just can't afford to lose. I think in the West minds, it's more of a case of, well, Ukraine's nice to have, but it's probably not that strategically important. So getting to your answer to your question, I mean, Ukraine's actually a tiny country economically. It's about 185 billion US. Um, so that's less than 0.1% of global GDP. So, um, you know, countries like Greece are bigger, uh, you know, much maligned economies uh, mm -hmm. like that. Um, but... Um, and, and for that matter, Russia's not very big either. The Russian economy is just slightly bigger than the Australian economy, um, which might surprise some people. Um, but in terms of um, military might, it is the second biggest on the planet. So um, I think for the West to go for a full-on military engagement um, against Russia in the Ukraine is just not something I think they're really willing to contemplate. But if we do get into that scenario, then I think this current risk-off event is just going to keep going. Um, there are plenty of analogues we can look at the, in, in the past where when you get into a situation where a major war is commenced, um, risk appetite actually continues to dissipate until you actually get to the, the turning point of the war. And that certainly happened um, in, the, in the last major war. Um, so, look, I still favour some degree of de-escalation of this rather than you know the full-on... Um, boots on the ground, um, aggressive entrenched military warfare type scenario. And I think when you think about you know, this sort of ongoing escalation, what could happen, what does it mean for Australia? Well, I don't think we'd be engaging troops. So I do think you'd be thinking about this, what does it mean for commodities? We've obviously seen this in the past. Um, the best example would be the Korean War, obviously with wool prices. I mean, it was an extraordinary moment in time when the US started to stockpile um, wool for their own war needs. And uh, our wool price uh, went through the moon. Um, but in a, the starting point is already a world where um, most raw materials, most commodities, uh, are already at pretty low inventory levels. So should we actually go to a period here where um, governments go through a period of trying to build their own stockpiles in anticipation of what could be a, a major conflict that's just going to build upon the current problem that we have where consumers were obviously um, not only doing their own stockpiling but causing this enormous um, shortage um, in the uh, global supply chain. So it's an interesting period in history for it to happen in, but I think the way that I would think about it is it would certainly put that pressure on, uh, upward pressure on commodity prices and energy prices. We're seeing that to some degree. Gold's obviously been rallying. That's one of the more favoured ways to um, to play this out in initial phases. Um, but I'd also sort of bear in mind, you know, put in mind what would actually happen to the bond market in this environment. Well, you know, this is probably where it, it might be drawing a long bow, but you would normally think that in this sort of environment, bonds should be rallying. And I've been amazed, uh, as I might have said earlier on, that um, we really haven't seen much of a rally into this. Um, and maybe the focus is still on um, the inflation threat and the Fed moves and, and, and that and that type of event. But typically, um, all other even minor incursions I can think of, we've seen pretty decent bond rallies. And it made me wonder: is it has, does the bond market have in mind what happened in the last two major uh, wars? Um, what actually happened? Of course, we saw massive bond issuance to finance the the programs. Um, you know, we had a uh, uh, in the UK, in 
Canada, particularly in the US, um, you know, uh, and throughout Europe, Germany in particular, enormous um, bond issuances to, to finance the military campaign. Um, you might remember you had people like Charlie Chaplin running around trying to get people to do their patriotic duty. You'd probably have to have Nat Damon stop spruiking crypto and starting <laughs> to spruik uh, some, uh, some war bonds. But I think yeah, the point here is that we know that the fiscal finances coming out of the pandemic are stretched. And should we go into something that actually looked like genuine conflict, um, they're obviously going to have to lift their issuances to finance that. Um, and, um, you know, there is precedent for it. So, the, again, that might be drawing a long bow and going too far down the route of, a, of, a, of a genuine military engagement. But... It is curious why the bond market's been so resilient. Are there any particular commodities that seem uh, more exposed than others to, to this kind of dynamic that you were referring to there? Yeah, so it's an interesting one. I mean, gold's the safe haven, so people are starting to uh, um, uh, aggregate in there for, for, for you know, portfolio hedging reasons. But, I mean, clearly when you look at what Russia does and who it sends it to, um, energy is such a huge proportion of their economy. I mean, over 50% of the Russian economy is essentially oil and gas um, and it supplies it principally to Western Europe. So, yeah, by definition, <laughs> that's that's probably the number one thing to go to. But we also, um, I would also suggest but when you look across most of the industrial metals, you just have to pull up the London Stock Exchange, um, the London Metals Exchange inventory levels and the various other uh, exchanges around the world, there really isn't that much there. So in my mind, um, it's, you'd still probably put another bid under iron ore to, to a degree, although uh, I'd be, it wouldn't be necessarily my favoured one. Um, but I do think most of the other things that go into that industrial complex, you know, when we think about in the old days, you'd be thinking obviously iron and steel and those sort of things. These days, most modern warfare is done with uh, chips and computers. So um, you probably would have to sort of recalibrate your thinking a little bit towards some of those commodities. And, um, yeah, indeed, you know, if we're thinking about even copper, uh, you know, copper is a big part of that as well. And, and the inventories there are particularly light. Well, speaking of chips, um, that, that's a convenient segue to speak about Taiwan. Um, of course, the world's attention is pretty firmly set on Ukraine and Russia at the moment, but there's a few other conflicts going on around the place that are kind of flying under the radar a little bit, one of which is the situation with China and Taiwan. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and maybe any other conflicts that you think are relevant for investors to be looking at that maybe are just being overshadowed by this uh, this Russia-Ukraine situation. Yeah, so I think uh, a lot of us have probably had similar thoughts on this, that if there's a major conflict in Europe, it might just open up the window for you know, Xi to, to – he's made his intentions perfectly clear um, already and in the eyes of – China, they'd merely be sort of bringing, if you want to call it a, a wayward lamb back to the flock rather than actually you know, invading a sovereign state. So, Although I think yeah. Russia seems to think the same way about Ukraine, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's, yeah, the pers perspective of the West versus the perspective of Russia or China is actually incredibly different, right? So, but I think the, the point with the China-Taiwan one, I think, is, is actually probably more interesting in a way because... Um, China's going through a pretty interesting period of its history, um, both in terms of, you know, the growth drivers have clearly changed dramatically, um, and uh, we might chat about that a bit more later on. But I think the um, the important aspect about China at the moment as it tries to delever, as it tries to find new sources for growth, um, is that there's been a couple of key areas that it really has failed to get world-class in. and. Um, one of the important ones is actually just basically chip design. And it might sound like that's, is that a, really a big thing? Well, it is. And it is particularly, you know, pent, they spent almost 20 years trying to develop a world-class one. And it just so happens that, you know, over the water in Taiwan within grasping distance is one of the world's best. I mean, the Taiwan Semiconductor um, Manufacturing Company is is within the top two or three in the world without question. And um, it would seem that when you think about how those sorts of chips and that chip design is such a, an important part about what could drive the productivity growth that China's going to desperately need as it ages, 
um, I think it's a really big part of the plan. So you do need a catalyst, I think, for some these things to happen. And I don't think it's about Xi trying to cement his personal legacy and those sorts of things. I actually do think that um, China's realised they actually have a bit of a growth problem and they need an engine for growth. And this is one of many, but one important um, element that would uh, help drive that. You mentioned before that gold is a, you know, tends to do well in situations like this. And I've heard you talk about using it as a, as a portfolio hedge. Um, it, obviously, there's lots of different ways to hedge portfolio, you know, uh, especially if you're an institutional investor, the options to you are almost endless. Why do you, I mean, gold's just about the simplest hedge you can get. Why do you favour, maybe that's the reason, I don't know, but why do you favour gold as a hedge uh, over some of these more complex options? Yeah, well, it's a good question. I mean, for most portfolio managers, you're you're in a specialist asset class, so you're actually paid to be invested. Um, so for those that are sitting over the top looking across multiple asset classes, they really need some portfolio device, right? So you can sit there and try and run um, a whole series of put options and it gets very expensive through time as you just basically are writing premium out the whole time. Um, bonds have traditionally obviously filled the role um, but again, with being this close to the zero bound and this after this, such an extended bond rally, they really haven't been fulfilling the role, the stated role, to the extent that they have done in the past. They, they still fill some of that role, don't, don't get me wrong. But I think when you're looking at a genuine portfolio hedge, um, I don't actually think the risks are, or the, the, the list is that long. Um, the... Um, yeah, and I'm not one of these advocates of that you should always buy gold. I mean, there seems to be this chorus out there that you buy gold for inflation, you buy gold for deflation, you buy gold for everything in between. It's just I, I see it as more of a case of if you see some events on the horizon or if you think that risk assets have got over their skis, it is reasonable and should be expected that you should be building up something of a position in gold because what we – have seen um, throughout history and what we've seen even recently is gold is still negatively correlated with risk assets or equity markets in particular. And when you do get the big drawdown, uh, it does tend to hold its value. Um, the caveat for me though, is that once you've built that position and the event either happens or the risk goes away, gold quickly becomes the funding source. So it's not something that needs to be in the portfolio at a high level. Um, for long periods of time, it's something I see as very much just that tactical device to get you through the bumps. Yeah, that's exactly what we saw in, in 2020, wasn't it, if I recall correctly? I think gold was rallying throughout February and then sometime in March it, it went the other direction. Exactly. And that's what we're seeing this sort of moment now. I mean, obviously equities are, um, are falling pretty constantly day in, day out at the moment. Gold's up about 5% so far this year, so it's not exactly... You know, going through the roof, but on a relative basis, you know, that's 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 a really important thing to have. Um, uh, and it's really when, you know, it's really just at those moments that it's that it shines in the portfolio. How much do you think is really required to, you know, assuming you're talking about a fairly typical, you know, balanced to growth kind of allocation, maybe a little bit of defensive assets, but probably fa favouring more growth assets. For a portfolio like that, what would be a typical hedging allocation to gold? Yeah, so I think that's, a, that's always going to depend on obviously the individual and, and, and everything else. But I think um, a reasonable, um, you know, just running it through portfolio optimizers and thinking about it through time, um, a gold position in the order of about 5 to 7%, I think is about right. Um, if you think that something particularly nasty is about to happen, then obviously you can take it up a little bit. And if that's the case, you're probably not going to lose out um, too much. You know, the Trouble is, you know, the way that you hold gold is obviously, and the way you express that view is also uh, important as well. No. Do you favour ETFs for that, or do you like to buy physical gold and put it in a in a vault somewhere? Like, what's the what's the the best way to hold gold? Do you think? Well, I'm still trying to find someone who can actually value a gold company for me. I mean, it's <laughs> it's been yeah. Well, there's gold miners as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, it almost seems like an impossible task. I mean. I've, I've, been in this game for a while and been around equity analysts for a long time um, and some of the best of them and getting a valuation on a gold stock I think is actually kind of tricky unless that particular company actually has a clear line of sight to 
it's a, a production lift or there's some other catalyst. I think the holding gold bullion, I, I actually don't see much of the point of it either. I mean, unless it's there for the zombie apocalypse or something <laughs> of that will come. You know, yeah, I think you probably won't bury it buried in a safe on the under the floor, right? <laughs> well, I mean, even Kerry Packer had his gold uh, stolen <laughs> out of his office, right? So, or reportedly. So, it's not storing it yourself is probably not, is not that safe. So, yeah, I do favour an ETF, but I would favour um, only ETFs that actually map the gold price. So, they actually are just physically gold bullion and not this. There are some out there that are a combination of gold, gold companies and even derivatives. Uh, I think you probably want to avoid those ones. So, pure gold exposure ETFs. Yep, because they're liquid or they're pretty liquid. Um, there's That doesn't have that uh, problem with the underlying, not map, mapping the physical, and they do, if you chart them, they directly match the gold price. Well, bit of a change of tack. As of close of business last Friday, the 18th of February, locally markets were pricing in 117 basis points of rate hikes by the end of this year and another 77 basis points of rate hikes between January and June of next year which seems pretty aggressive in the you know in the environment that most of us are used to now uh, I, I don't think I would even be able to tell you when the last time we saw nearly 200 basis points of hikes was probably around 2007 I would guess I guess first of all where are your expectations and estimates compared to that market pricing yeah, okay. So, I mean, I'd probably put it in terms of um, not just Australia because it gets kind of important. So, in the US, we've got about six hikes priced. Canada, six hikes. This is for this current calendar year. Um, Canada's got six. The uh, UK has got about five and a half. Uh, Euro Eurozone's got about four. <laughs> and we've got about four and a half for this year. So, um, how would I put my expectations relative to that? Well, I think we'll see more in the US because, um, and we'll maybe have a chat about that in a bit. But I don't see the rest actually following through to the same degree. Um, Canada, I think, will probably do about five. I think in the UK, we'll do about four. Europe, I'll be surprised if we get two out of the way this year. And here, it's still a debate whether we just do one sort of, you want to call it a supersized one, which will be a 35 basis point one um, in November, or whether you know, the wages data, we get a pulse and you know, and August is also then in train. But so I think it's, but the, but the idea that we'll be doing um, four to five rate hikes uh, in this country this year, I don't think is, is actually a realistic proposition. And that's, that's coming from me, who's pretty much been the advocate of the V-shaped recovery pretty early on, very early on, and we'd been pushing this agenda um, since the middle of 2020, actually, that the US was going to see a surge in inflation. And so the trouble with the US is they are just so much further down the road than the rest of us. Um, they've kind of lost control or are in the process of losing control of long-run long inflation expectations. And there's a host of ways that you can look at that. The Fed's come up with this fancy measure. Um, we replicated that and uh, have been following it very closely. And it still hasn't settled. In fact, there's a real skew in that, that it could actually continue to see inflation expectations continue to rise. And at the end of the day, that is actually all they care about. You know, they, there's a lot about what people think are in the reaction function. We actually have had the second most important, important person at the Fed saying that in September 2020, that, you know, that is all we actually care about. Um, and at the moment, they haven't been able to control it. So... There's plenty of hikes that are going to come through in the US. Um, there are, Canada will go along for that ride um, for most of it. But here, um, you know, we have had a case where the central bank's been, um, let's just say, haven't covered themselves in glory in terms of their economic forecasts. Um, if you sort of look back to where they had the inflation view um, back through the August to October period, they actually thought by now we'd be sitting there at about 1.5% underlying. Now, you know, just a few months later, um, it's they're, they're talking to three and a quarter. Um, and by the way, that wasn't really due to an upgrade in the growth view. It was just purely misanalyzing the inflation risks. Of um, course, they did the same thing in the other direction over the last 10 years, haven't they? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't want to be overly critical of economic forecasting because I'm one of them. <laughs> but, uh, but in this case, I think it was actually quite identifiable and they broke away from where the consensus was as well. So, the consensus was actually continuing to lift their views on inflation into the middle part of last year and through the back end of last year. 
and we had a central bank pushing aggressively in the other direction. I mean, in essence, their profile was suggesting underlying inflation be running at like 0.4s when we were seeing over double that in, in reality. So, I mean, it's actually quite a big miss, but they also and had to backtrack on their long run forward guidance and obviously um, an, an abrupt end to the QE program, let alone their yield targeting pro- program. So it hasn't been a pretty six or nine months. Um, but the point is, you know, when you see so much getting in our curve so quickly, it's not always just a reflection of what's going on with domestic factors. Um, if I'm sitting in New York or London and I'm at a big fixed income or hedge fund, um, a lot of what I'm doing is putting bets in the US or in, in that case in the UK, but I hedge that by putting positions in places like Australia. So I don't view what's in our curve as actually uh, a realistic probability of what will, will be delivered through the balance of this year. Let's say you plug those six rate hikes into your models. What does that do to equity prices? Yeah, so that's an interesting question because, um, first of all, when we when we try and do valuations for equity markets, it's less about what the cash rate's doing and it's more about what the longer run bonds are doing. But more importantly, it's not even the nominal bond that actually matters. It's real bonds that really matter. Um, well, they matter more. So in this sort of next phase, what's going to be particularly interesting, yes, we've already seen this you know, sell-off in bonds. Um, we've already seen um, all these rate hikes getting in the forward curve. But the reality is when the Fed or other major central banks actually start raising rates, that's actually when real rates, long, real bonds actually start moving uh, for two reasons. Um, a, they actually now believe what's in the curve is actually transpiring. And secondly, inflation expectations start to come down. So if you like, that enables real bonds um, or yields to rise. And it's at those moments that you find the bigger valuation challenges for equities. So the initial couple of rate hikes actually don't hurt that much as you get along a little bit further into it, be a little bit closer to um, a neutral setting um, or got a bit of tightening setting, you know, a, a, a contractory setting, then obviously um, it starts to hurt more. My point is that we think that in, in the case of the US, you've still got negative um, half percent real 10-year bond yields, we think they're going to at least plus half a percent. And it really comes down to how fast that adjustment happens. If it happens over a space of a couple of months, um, you'll lose about one and a half forward PE points off the market. So it's about 15% off the market. So it's going to come down to the speed and um, as well as the level. So that's the framework that I sort of tend to think of it in terms of. Um, These other events in the background obviously could see some PED rating as well because risk premium could set up, could step up. So there are other things outside of just purely the bond dynamic. But I think, you know, that's really the thing to focus on now. And also the last point on this is that as real bonds rise, it's the returns that you get out of the market are actually going to come more from where you are in the market rather than the overall level as well, because it's going to really favour some sectors um, vis-a-vis others. Is that the old you know, value versus growth dichotomy, you, you know, short duration stocks as opposed to long duration stocks. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly part of it. So, yeah, your tech or and long duration and um, your telcos and your, uh, your, your utilities and those sorts of things tend to tend to struggle in that environment. Um, and if you're looking at sort of a, even if you believe there is this long run um, story where growth should outperform value, um, just in terms of, you know, the broader adjustment for what we think comes through in rates, there would still be, as I say, about another 20% downside in growth um, vis-a-vis value. So, you know, Australia's kind of lucky, though, in, at, at this point in history because we actually don't have that much in that growth basket. Um, we do have a lot in the value basket, but it's mainly resources and financials. Uh, if you strip those out, you're left with only about 20-odd stocks and a fair few of those are housing-related, so or housing construction-related. But I do think that you know when you look at what happened after the dot-com bubble bursting um yeah our market outperformed all the way to 2010-11 um vis-a-vis the us and and most major markets um we dramatically underperformed obviously from 2017 onwards as you know all of this uh allocation to tech and growth really has happened 
there's a pretty good chance, given the composition of our market, that we actually outperform on a relative basis again. Um, so that's probably going to be one of the, I think, noticeable trends as we recalibrate rates higher over the next couple of years. Moving on to China, they recently surprised on the downside with uh, some birth rate data and population statistics. Could you maybe explain what that data was and what the significance was first, and then we can kind of have have a bit, hear a little bit about the impact that could have, you know, for Australia and the, the broader world economy. Yeah, so you, your listeners probably remember in the, in the third quarter of last year there was a, um, so September quarter of last year there was a whole series of announcements that came out of China that really caught people off guard. They clamped down on um, private education that just took that sector to zero effectively in the listed market, clamped down aggressively on uh, private childcare. You saw more restrictions coming through on property and particularly, you know, directed at trying to contain property prices. And there were also a little sort of grab bag of other policies that probably didn't get the attention. But um, I think markets were trying to come to grips as why, because China had already, the data had already slowed a lot more broadly. And um, at any normal period, China would have already been cutting interest rates and trying to re-stimulate. Um, but what I think, and you know, there were very few people I think that's, that uh, A, noticed the data being released and then even fewer that could actually, that, that connected the dots. So the thing that we saw sort of to seep out of China, it wasn't like a public policy announcement, was China really only does a, a full population census once every 10 years. There are other censuses that come through, but if you're a centrally planned economy, you really care about a census because it essentially allocate, determines the allocation of resources. Um, and when it came through, I think they would have been absolutely shocked. Um, now, in the first instance, it means these might sound like big numbers, but every sort of sensible demographer, including the World Bank and others, were running an assumption that China's birth rate per household was about 1.7 times. And so were the Chinese themselves. Um, and the first sort of uh, snippets of information that we got out of China is that it was sitting closer to 1.3. Mm. So to gauge why that's kind of important. It's a big gap. <laughs> well, it is, because if you, so, I saw that number and pulled out a, a population simulator and, and started plugging in the parameters. So, you know, at 1.7, we knew China's population growth was going to start to decline, and that was always going to be a big challenge. But China was aware of it, and that's why they were investing so heavily in these sort of future-facing technologies, because they, they need that productivity uplift to offset the decline in the population. So it was expected to decline by about 400 million over the next 40-odd years. It's a you know, big number, right? 400, 400 million people. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, but if we run it forward, you'd be, if, and in this simulator, um, we'd be getting by 2090, China's population would actually halve. So if you're going from a, a 1.4 billion population to essentially half of that, um, you know, in, in a, Yes, that's a long period of time to 2090, but it actually happens quite quickly. And I think it also leaves you with a very dangerously shaped, if you want to call it population pyramid, where you get, you've got a lot of people that are, um, that are uh, aging quite quickly. And that's not good for social stability. It's not good for productivity. It's not good for, um, if you like, political harmony either. So I think the, the Chinese politicians would have been absolutely shocked by that. Um, and, you know, we just don't know whether 1.3, 1.4 people per household as a birth rate is actually the bottom because, you know, in the West, what we've seen is that no matter what policy you throw at it, it's very hard to stabilise, let alone turn around a low birth rate. Um, so, you know, China did a lot of other things as well. They started to clamp down on the lesbian gay community. They made it very hard to get abortions. There's all sorts of things that they've been doing, but they're all, I think, directed at trying to turn this birth rate around. And that's going to be a really important um, challenge and a really long challenge. And I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg in terms of the, um, the policy announcements. But it does mean that China is highly unlikely to be growing at the five and a half to six and a half type growth rates. I mean, it's, I think we've got to get used to China growing two, three, maybe 4% in a, in a good year um, and uh, in bad years, um, yeah, 
less than two percent. So that's going to be a very different world. Um, you can think about through that, that through the commodity complex, but you can think about that, that through um, lots of different prisms. I think, um, but a, a slower China because of population growth is uh, much weaker doesn't necessarily mean a cheaper China. By the way, it could actually feed into higher costs rather than rather than we normally think about. Slower Chinese growth would mean uh, excess production and disinflation pressures, not necessarily in this case. Hmm. One area of China that was getting a lot of attention earlier this year, and maybe it was late last year as well, I can't remember now, was um, the property market and, of course, with the default of Evergrande. Last I heard was when the company actually defaulted and then it seemed to drop out of the news and <laughs> and out of everybody's collective consciousness. What's actually happening in the in the Chinese property market, you know, now since then is are there more companies defaulting Has it all gone quiet? It just it doesn't seem to be any real news coming out of it at least in the west. Yeah, it's a, that's a really good question because it's it's still playing out like uh, yeah, there was Whenever Grand First was in the news, uh, obviously it was it was everywhere that that news, but it was a risk that you could identify. I think many years in advance. I mean, if you had to look at where all the leverage was taken on um, in emerging markets, I, yep, you can see it's in China. Then you dug into it, and you could see it within the property market. I mean, well, how are they doing it? Oh, well, they're issuing a lot of corporate bonds, and oh, it's principally just the developers. And then we got layered into their wealth management products and there were multiple levels of leverage effectively. So that was kind of interesting. Now with Evergrande, it certainly got the attention. It was obviously one of the very big ones. Um, but if you're looking at uh, a collection of developers' corporate bond prices, so Evergrande's uh, corporate bonds are currently trading about 17 cents in the dollar, I think it is, you know, down from 90 cents in the dollar prior. Um, as late as the last couple of days, we've had another one called um, Zenro Properties, I think it is. It's done exactly the same thing. It was actually viewed as being one of the safer ones. <laughs> and then it made an announcement a few days ago saying, we, actually, we don't think we can meet next quarter's interest payments. Uh, its bonds are now sub 20 cents in the dollar. It was up 90 cents in the dollar a couple of days ago. So there's, but there's, it's not as though there's just one or two of these. There's, there's a real, yeah, quite a handful of them, more than fingers on your hands, right? So what's kind of interesting is that it has got out of the papers, it's out of the headlines, but the process is still happening. Now, China's been able to try and manage this to some degree by saying, yes, you're a naughty boy, we're going to take some of those assets and put it to a state-owned entity, um, or you know, we're going to make you sell down some of the some of the assets. And, of course, all the foreign um, bondholders have, uh, have really been taken to the cleaners. That's actually a pretty small part of the funding. But so my point is that when you look at this, um, you know, China's, we all know it's a, China's property market is a big part of their economy, 25 to 30%, depending on which way you cut it. So it's huge. They're trying to deleverage it. But it's also a case that's very different to the way that we would go about financing our housing construction. It's, it's essentially a game of confidence because well, two-thirds um, of the funding comes from corporate bonds and just people giving the company a big deposit to go and build me a home. So if you don't have confidence in the corporate entity, um, you know, two-thirds of the whole funding mix just goes away. So it's going to be really hard. I think it's, you know, we think about pushing on a string and a Western analogy when central banks are cutting rates but not getting any traction. I think this is going to be a bit of a case of that. So they've tried to, you know, we've seen a little bit more liquidity coming to the Chinese economy recently. I just don't think that's enough to, to re-engender this sort of beast. And I don't think they actually want to. Um, so it's maybe the, the bigger headlines of failure might have gone in the background, but the real economic impacts of this are really just getting started. We've barely even seen any fall in, uh, in floor space constructed yet. So all that will happen over the next couple of years. So it's an ongoing uh shift in the composition of their economy. Um, so buying, you know, I think we, as an Australian looking out, we have this tendency to look at uh, an aberration in growth or an aberration in a commodity price and say, well, I'm going to buy that dip, it's going to go back to where it was. But what drove the Chinese economy and the resource complex that's been from that over the last 25 years is now vastly different. So I do think people need to at least step back and just think about that a little bit deeper than buying the dip mentality. 
It's hard not to see the comparisons between the Chinese property market now and the US property market in, you know, 2005, 2006, 2007. Do you think that it is, first of all, is it is it an apt comparison? And is it that big? I mean, obviously, the problems in the US uh, property market were enormous for the US economy. Are we talking that scale of problem in China or is it relatively smaller? Yeah, so I think it's 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 different because yes, the US was building too many homes. They they drew too many people out of the rental pool and put them in homes that they they couldn't afford. But what was going on there? And I did mention the Chinese wealth management uh, industry is a bit of an industry of itself. The US actually, (laughs) but that whole manufacture and distribute uh, and then and package up into CLOs and. all sorts of uh, securitized instruments. Um, it w- it's just hard to find any other comparison to that. The US leveraged loan market has some hallmarks of that you know, manufacture and distribute um, model, but it's nowhere near as big as what they did in that um, lead up to 2007. Um, so, you know, I think China definitely has a lot of debt but doesn't have that problem so much as far as I can see anyway that it then got into the global banking system and what we had of course is when the when the crash actually occurred um, that seizing up of corporate finance or, or finance was really that no one could trust what the other who was on the other side of the transaction in China they just make that happen you know the government's just going to I mean I think China's modus operandi at the moment is yeah the westerners are going to lose their money if they brought some Chinese developer bonds um, or restructure some assets the people that are actually uh, has signed on to get a home well they're going to get a home of some description might not be the one they signed on for but you're going to get something um, but it's not I don't think their their intent is and the structure was never really uh, going to I think give you that Achilles heel that would then permeate throughout their banking system and into the global banking system, which would be far more perilous. So it's a really big adjustment to take your, uh, your you know, if you think about Australia, housing constructions, uh, about 5% of GDP. Uh, but if you're an economy that's sitting there at uh, close to 30% of GDP and you're trying to bring that down to something that maybe looks more like 15%, that's going to be a really big adjustment for them. Well, from one housing market to another, <laughs> I understand that there's a bit of a supply and demand imbalance on the horizon in Australia. Could you tell us a little bit about that? You know, how how big is it, and what it might mean, you know, locally over the next one, two years, roughly. Yeah, so not everyone would agree with this, but uh, but I think people just haven't really done the numbers. So. I mean, what have we done in the last couple of years? Well, we've obviously you know, cut rates fairly aggressively. We've um, gave a whole lot of uh, incentives, both at the state, but obviously via the Home Builder Program to first home buyers. So some of that was via um, you know, stamp duty holidays and, and, and the like. But when you calibrated it all up, we had this an enormous um, affordability incentive for people to go out and and to you know, really bring forward um, the purchase of a newly constructed home. So that's not actually creating new demand, it's just bringing forward demand that would have happened um, through time. So by definition, you've actually created a void that will come post that pull forward, you know, similar to what we did with GST, right? You had this pull forward of demand, then you had a, a lull. Um, and obviously, the Home Builder Program was temporary, and some of these other programs actually were temporary as well. And it was ended up being three times the size of what the government intended it to be. Um, um, so that's sort of point one. So you know, you've got this enormous pull forward, and that void that all that's going to open up. Second one is, of course, is you know what's demand. Well, demand is actually your underlying demographic demand, and that's partly a function of you know how the how the uh, 20 um, to 35-year-olds are really moving through the population and then, you know, how that sort of cascades through into how many housing units we actually need. But, of course, when you turn off migration for a couple of years, you really are creating a scenario where you've got this void, but you've also got this now, this real lack of genuine demand. So either housing starts and approvals have to plummet 
or we get some miraculous recovery net migration back up to 225, 230,000 in a very short period of time. But the more likely scenario is that even with a pretty decent fall in housing construction, we'll end up with about a quarter of a million excess homes relative to um, demand by the end of uh, 2023. And that's a big one. So if you believe market pricing for rates, as we we're talking about early on, and we're going to do uh, four and a half hikes this year and then more next year, and you're doing that into a massive or very significant oversupply of housing, you know, that would be a pretty big policy error. So that's one of the reasons why I actually don't have the RBA hiking as much as market pricing. I think this is a big deal. I think they'd feel much more comfortable hiking rates when they can actually see that net migration coming back on and when they can see, uh, if you like, the initial phases of the of, of how households absorb the first three or four rate hikes. If I asked you to put a number on it, I know <laughs> uh, it's always a, a challenging thing to do, but what, what are your expectations in terms of over, say, the next 12 or 24 months in terms of how far house prices are likely to go down? Well, house prices will go down somewhat, I think, but you know, that's because the prices that we've seen realised during COVID were not a real market. Um, yeah, I mean, volumes have come on now, um, started to normalise now, but there's a long period there where it was very artificial, I think, in terms of the prices paid and relative to the available supply and, and the motivations as well were different. So, um, and if you were being told that interest rates weren't going to rise to 2024 at the earliest, then uh, you, may have, you may have been willing to overpay as well. So, um, I think there is some obvious um, declines that, that come through on the back of um, back of that. But the bigger sort of broader decline that I think some people are talking about, you know, 20, 25% house price declines. Well, in my mind, what happens, even if the shadow price, if you like, if you had to, if a house had to sell, maybe, and they did sort of have to clear at that price, um, well, that's only going to happen if you're forced to. If you lose, you know, if you lost your job or whatever reason, you've had to sell your property. So I think what tends to happen is the the economic forces may come through that suggest prices would clear at a much lower price, but the reality is no one sells. The, the volumes dry up, and my view is volumes will dry up and prices will probably go down, you know, five to seven percent, and um, and and they'll stay there. Well, that is the end of the main part of the interview. I know we're running a little bit over time, but if you've got 10 more minutes to hang around, I've got three favourite questions that I like to ask every one of my guests. Sure. I'll be quick though. Excellent. <laughs> uh, I think you might have answered a few of these before, actually. Um, I don't know what your answers were last time. so <laughs> Not that wise. So. <laughs> um, could you tell me about a book that's been particularly influential on your investment philosophy? Yeah, so... Um Look, a lot of a lot of macro is kind of think about trying to get in the heads of central bankers and trying to think how they think, and you know why the structure sort of operates the way it does. So I think a, a, a really uh, interesting book for those that like to get into a little bit of the history, but with a sort of very interesting narrative behind it is the Lords of Finance. Um, it's uh, I'm going to get his name wrong. I think it's um, Leaquat Ahmed. I think is his name, but it's just it goes through the uh, the four really original central bankers um, in the U.S. So Benjamin Strong um, in the Bank of England was um, Montague Norman, and then we had the uh, the German and, and the French equivalents. But the reason why it was so important, it basically shows shows very clearly how these people are actually human with a lot of uh, frailties and they made some enormous errors and it caused a hell of a lot of economic dis distress um, and some of it we just didn't need to, to have. And so there is periods where you get these you know enormous amounts of groupthink um, amongst central bankers and they go on a particular course, you know, average inflation targeting and QE are two examples of that now and arguably both have caused um, some distress which may or may not uh, have been needed. So it does come down to the personalities and how the, how the structure works. So I think it's, a, it's a re actually a really well-written book or, and an interesting book. Um, if I had to give a second one, maybe if, you, if, you don't, if you're not into your history but you're more into um, 
sort of behavioral economics, then uh, Nudge by Richard Thar is actually a good one as well. You should get him on your podcast. He could at least be entertaining. You might use your bleeping, uh, your beeping function a bit. Can you make an introduction for me? I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to re- interview Richard. He's a, he's a great personality. Yeah, he's a big personality. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'll just repeat those for for everybody. So we've got the lords of, uh, sorry, lords of finance, the bankers who broke the world. Uh, I'm going to try and pronounce the name, uh, Leaquat Ahmed. I think that's how you say it. Um, and the other one was Nudge: Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness by Richard Thaler. Um, as always, I'll put links in the wire to this podcast for those two books. So if you didn't catch those or you feel free to jump on to livewiremarkets.com, navigate to The Wire for this podcast, and I'll ensure there's a couple of links in there for you. Could you tell us about your biggest gain or loss? What were the most valuable lessons that you took from the experience? Well, I think gains was, was, was... was it's probably pretty easy. I, I think we we're, were very early to the whole China industrialization phase and what that might mean for resources. So um, pretty early on, I think back in 2003, we were just trying to find a, a basket of uh, small line ore plays. A little one called Fortescue was in there as well. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, that that was kind of nice because it was it really was a case of yeah, having a differentiated view um, uh, from a bottom-up research perspective, uh, and then um, finding a way to to monetize it. But in terms of you know flipping that around, that's also the greatest loss. I mean, many years ago, I was involved in making a forecast in at uh, nineteen ninety six that that um, the Asian financial crisis would largely occur. We thought there was going to be a period of massive capital flight from Asia, and did a load of work we did a lot of uh, a lot of analysis on it and never put a dollar on it and uh, so opportunity cost I think is sometimes just as important as as actual physical losses they actually sometimes hurt more I have one more question for you but I always like to insert a little bit of a disclaimer don't try this at home we're not actually suggesting that anybody goes out there puts all of their money in a single asset and forgets about it for five years this is supposed to be a bit of an exercise in long-term thinking and hopefully a little bit of fun so with that being said if markets were going to close for the next five years starting from tomorrow and you could only own one investment asset what would it be yeah so i think I might have heard one of your previous guests say something on the lines of um, you know, choosing a stock that's got really good exposure to the electrification of the planet and and uh, everything we're going to do on the decarbon. And you know, I'm a, thematic investing may not be the uh, uh, the most loved thing at the moment, but I do think that theme is obviously going to continue to play out. It's it's got um, enormous momentum behind it from. Not just governments and individuals, but obviously by the pension funds that are really driving the allocation of capital far faster than I think many people would have envisaged. So, so that's up there. But I think if you had to sit in Australia and think about um, this environment of rising rising rates and um, what's going on, the dynamics that we're talking about earlier on, I actually do think we're at the point of the cycle where you should be buying a, a dividend basket of stocks and. Um, you know, a fair bit of your return over the next couple of years are just going to come through um, the sustainable yield part. And in our market, that's a fair bit of the value bucket as well. So, you know, you'll, be, you'll have that sort of value protection. You'll get your bank, your dividend yield. And uh, don't and, forget your franking credits. And you'll get your franking credits. So I think that's that's probably what I would be tilting people towards. Great. Well, Tim, thanks for taking the time to sit down with me today. It's nice to interview somebody face-to-face again. It's been a while. And uh, yeah, it's been wonderful to hear your thoughts. Thanks, Patrick. Great to be here. Well, that's the end of the show. If you made it this far, I hope that means you enjoyed it. So please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Or if you're a Livewire reader, give this wire a like. Thanks for tuning in.